Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining this IFPRI policy seminar. I'm William Masters. I'm the director of the Food Prizes for Nutrition Project, uh, and it's a real privilege to open this event today. We'll have uh, some extraordinary speakers to share the opportunities we've found in thinking about food prices for nutrition. And I expect you'll find many opportunities to use this in your own work. Uh, as you know, this is the second of two events. So we, yesterday at this time uh, at the World Bank, we hosted the launch of our Food Prices for Nutrition data hub, uh, where you can download all the cross-country results that the FAO launched last week at the UN headquarters with their flagship report on the state of food security and nutrition in the world. And at the Food Prices for Nutrition data hub, you can download the granular data on uh, prices by food group and so forth, see a lot more. Uh, and if you missed the event, uh, you can watch it at, at live.worldbank.org or see the data hub itself at data.worldbank.org. But we're here today at IFPRI to look behind the numbers in much more detail. So what we'll get to do is hear directly from the researchers about how and why these new metrics were developed and the many new opportunities I think they offer for your own policy work. So if you're at the IFPRI event page, you can join us in the Q&A box, share ideas, also on social media with the hashtag food prices for nutrition, uh, and of course, individually with each of us after the event. Uh, and there's much more detail on the project at our course uh, project site at Tufts University, uh, including a beta version of software tools to do this kind of work in your own institution. So we'll dive into the content, but I wanna just say one word about the project as a whole, because what we're gonna to see today brings together really two very different strands of tr traditions of work in food and nutrition. And what we've done in this project, I think, is to bring them together in a, in a new way. So thread number one is governments and others tracking food prices to monitor inflation in consumer price indexes and to measure price levels for purchasing power parity comparisons. So it's inflation and purchasing power. Those are my own roots. So I vividly remember as a graduate student sitting on the floor of a closet in the central statistical office of Zimbabwe, sifting through file boxes after file boxes to get the detailed price data from individual markets around the country for my own dissertation on price distortions uh, and, and, and the effects of trade policy in the 1980s. We then did the same with distortions to agricultural prices uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and we bring that in this project together with this completely other strand of work in health, nutrition, tracking diet quality, measuring nutrient requirements, constructing food-based dietary guidelines. And ever since those nutrient requirements were first estimated, economists and nutritionists have worked together to compute least cost diets with which to meet nutrient needs, using those to plan as diet plans to guide nutrition assistance and feeding programs. What we've done is to bring those two strands together on a global scale, on a, to automate these calculations using least cost diets to measure food access every marketplace, every month, time and again, hundreds and hundreds of thousands uh, of least cost diets. So the origins of this actually started at a meeting at IFPRI in many ways. Another vivid memory of mine is from 2013, uh, hearing a presentation about the MDDW. The MDDW is the Minimum Diet Diversity Index for Women. It's a simplified diet quality criterion, whereby if you consume at least five out of 10 healthy food groups, you would meet that minimum threshold. I'm sitting there and thinking, we can do this. We can calculate on an automated way the using price data of the type I had used in my dissertation uh, to think about which items and which food groups were the cheapest way to get there and guide agriculture towards those least cost ways of reaching this diet diversity threshold. 
So I remember talking with Anna Herforth, who you'll hear from in a moment, about that idea. And we launched the Yanda project as part of Imana, Grinda Kandasa. Derek Heedy had the very smart notion to get rid of these acronyms and call our project Food Prices for Nutrition, which is what you'll hear about today. So one thing you won't hear about uh, is that original cost of diet diversity price index that reflects the cost of meeting uh, the MDDW metric with the least expensive food groups. Uh, we published that in AJE in 2018, uh, but you're not gonna hear about it because that was kind of the first pancake. And since then we've gotten a lot better at making pancakes. Um, and we make these uh, diet cost metrics that you'll hear about using much, much improved methods. So it's been a real treat to work with this whole team that you'll hear from today. Uh, and I hope very much that you'll enjoy learning about their work uh, as much as I have uh, and be able to apply these insights and findings in your own work. So Charlotte, back to you, thank you. Thank you so much, Will, for introducing this really exciting project and, and for giving us sort of a glimpse at this path-breaking approach for measuring costs and affordability of healthy diets around the world. We're going to get into more details um, about the project, and then we're going to talk about, we've got a lot of great speakers on this program, about the use of this, in, of, of this data, of these indicators in guiding agricultural and food policy at the global as well as at the national level. So thank you again for that. And, and a warm welcome to all of you on this meeting and all of you who will be listening to this um, uh, as a podcast or as a video later on. Um, we would very much like to hear from you. So you can participate in our Q&A session. Um, you can already start submitting um, your questions um, and please do so on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. Now it's my pleasure to turn to Marie Ruel, who's my colleague at IFPRI. She serves as the director of the Poverty Health and Nutrition Division. And Marie is going to talk about the implications of the, the, the work done by the Food Prices for Nutrition projects for the new CGIR research portfolio, which will include a strong focus on nutrition. And uh, we've got actually a video uh, teed up for Marie, but she's with us for the Q&A session. Thanks, Charlotte, and hello, everyone. Let me start by saying that I feel that the work done by Tufts, IFPRI, and the World Bank on food prices for nutrition and the publication of cost and number of people who could not afford a healthy diet in the annual SOFI report since 2020 has been a real game changer. And the main reason is that I feel that this work has really helped to bring the topics of healthy diets and nutritious foods to the table and shape discussions on finding solutions to the very real problem of poor quality diets in the world. These discussions were also very high on the agenda at the recent UN Food Systems Summit. Before that, discussions related to food security and projections about how much food we would need to feed the growing population always focused on quantity of food, that is calories. Although it's important to have enough calories and enough food, we know that poor quality diets and not lack of calories are currently the main drivers of all form of malnutrition, from undernutrition to micronutrient deficiencies and to overweight and obesity and diet-related non-communicable diseases or chronic diseases. So for us at IFPRI and in the new 1CGIAR, this global dialogue and 
emphasis on healthy diets and nutritious foods has really helped justify why we need to go beyond working mostly on production and supply side and on staple crops and start thinking about more nutritious foods and bringing the consumers more squarely into food system transformation. So with this new focus, we went ahead and developed several new initiatives that have a genuine focus on understanding and influencing consumer demand and feeding that information into food system transformation processes. One of these initiatives is called SHIFT. It focuses on sustainable healthy diets and starts with the consumer as opposed to the usual production side. Its overall objectives are to understand the drivers of food choices and to identify innovations and policies targeted to consumers and or to the food environment that will help shift consumer demand towards sustainable healthy diets. Another initiative called FRESH focuses on fruit and vegetables, specifically because we know that fruit and vegetable consumption is inadequate across socioeconomic groups and in all countries around the world. So the dual focus of this initiative is to stimulate both increased fruit and vegetable production and intake and improve the quality of diets. A third initiative, Resilient Cities, which again includes a strong focus on the demand side, looks at the unique conditions of urban and peri-urban life and the rapidly changing and modernizing food environments that bring a host of challenges for achieving sustainable healthy diets in these areas. And finally, we also have the South Asia Regional Initiative, which also shares a similar goal to improve access and affordability of sustainably produced nutritious food and to identify and test innovations to support consumption of healthy diets. So in conclusion, we have a lot of work to do to better understand how we can reverse the tide on quality diets, on poor quality diets. We can now measure and track the cost of healthy diets and the number of people who cannot afford a healthy diet, but we really are short of metrics and indicators to look at the relative importance of the multiple other drivers of food choices, such as time, convenience, cultural factors, preferences, the relative cost of unhealthy food and the promotion and marketing interventions and policies that often target unhealthy ultra processed food. So we have made great progress, but we have a lot more to, to do to improve diet quality globally. Thank you. Great. Um, thanks to both uh, Will and Marie, I think for teeing up really nicely um, the next presentation, which will be given by Anna Herford. She is the co-director of the Food Prices for Nutrition Project from uh, Tufts University, and she's really going to walk us through the data sources and methods um, behind uh, this novel approach um, of the Food Prices for Nutrition Project. Over to you, Anna. Thanks so much, Charlotte, and also to Will and Marie for the words of introduction. Really pleased to be here as the co-director of the Food Prices for Nutrition Project, which is now um, into our, I think, sixth or seventh year um, after the initial project that I led at Tufts starting back in 2016, just with two countries. And now, as Will mentioned, we've been able to expand this work to global scale. So it's really a pleasure to be here talking about the methods for these high-level indicators you 
hear about when you hear that 3 billion people cannot afford healthy diets, where that came from. Next slide. The Food Prices for Nutrition project really arose out of this vision that food price measurement should match the globally held aspiration toward food security, which was adop adopted over 25 years ago. And until now, for many years, food security measurement has not reflected this definition in full, which is that food security is when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food to meet dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. As Marie pointed to, measurement has centered on availability and access to calories, which clearly does not meet the entire definition that the world agreed to that we see here. More recently, it's started to include people's own reported experience of food insecurity, but the cost and affordability of a healthy diet indicators that we've brought in add the ability to measure economic access to nutritious food to meet dietary needs. And as we know, what gets measured gets managed. So it was really our goal to enable measurement of this definition more fully, uh, really reflecting nutrition as a basic fundamental need and part of food security. So Cindy will speak more to this later in her presentation from FAO. And it's really been a pleasure to partner with FAO, which has supported our work on, uh, on the background paper for the SOFI reports, the state of food security and nutrition in the world, to define the methods for the cost and affordability of a healthy diet. And I will spend the rest of the presentation today introducing these methods. Next slide. The method for finding the cost of a healthy diet starts with the question, what is a healthy diet? And to answer this question, we turn to the many nation states of the world. Many countries have answered this question as a matter of national policy. The uh, handiest definitions that we can find of a healthy diet are from national food-based dietary guidelines, which are created to uh, represent, first of all, a realistic way for regular people to select nutrient-adequate diets. And in addition to their dietary needs in terms of nutrients and energy, diets that also protect health against NCDs, uh, non-communicable diseases, for active and healthy lives. And these diets are designed as, you know, diets that will be dignified and culturally appropriate. And that meets kind of the food preferences for active and healthy lives writ large. And to note that in nations where dietary guidelines have been developed, they are the official policy standard for what constitutes dietary needs. And in many places, social safety nets and nutrition education are based on these guidelines. Next. So taking as a standard that many nations have already defined what a healthy diet is, what we aim to do is then to find out if you went to an average market in any country, how much would it cost to obtain a diet that satisfies those dietary guidelines and how many people could not afford the cost? First, I'll talk about how we quantify the healthy diet. Next slide. 
This is an example to show how dietary guidelines typically will identify a number of required food groups and the portions per day required of each, and then define the grams or calories per portion of each food group recommended. So then the task is to find out how much those recommended amounts of each food group cost at retail prices in the market. Next slide. And this cost can be found in two different ways. So uh, the first is to use national standards, national food-based dietary guidelines uh, for the purpose of uh, checking policy coherence within countries on whether people can actually access those recommended diets. And the Food Prices for Nutrition Project is working with several national governments uh, for example, we're starting to work with Ethiopia right now to mainstream the costing of their first ever food-based dietary guidelines just released this year. But then at a global level, we need a consistent standard that applies to all countries. So the, uh, the standard that we developed in supporting FAO to report the indicator in the SOFI is what we call the healthy diet basket. And this is a standard based on food-based dietary guidelines from many different countries that meets the commonalities among national guidelines to ensure global comparability. Next. So I'll talk a little bit about how we built this healthy diet basket as a global standard set of criteria representing commonalities across most national food-based dietary guidelines, which was created for the purpose of calculating and comparing the cost and affordability of healthy diets across countries. Six food groups make up the basket, which were the most universally recommended food groups. And uh, in the next slide, I can speak to how we identified the amounts of each. So we looked across a number of quantified guidelines from different countries and found the average amounts recommended in each food group. So you can kind of look at these food guide graphics from several different countries here, and imagine kind of overlaying each one on top of the other. And what you would see emerge is the average proportions of each food group that make up the healthy diet basket uh, that you can see emerging in the center. Next slide. And what that looks like uh, the healthy diet basket reflecting those commonalities across guidelines in terms of food group proportions, uh, you can see it's about half fruits and vegetables by volume, what it would look like on a plate, um, and about a quarter each of starchy staples and protein-rich foods, which have been divided into legumes, nuts, and seeds, and animal source foods, and then a small proportion of fats and oils. And this grouping, this kind of proportionality, is the most common distribution of food groups seen in food guides in many different countries, a couple of which are pictured here from Poland and Canada. And uh, so this is sort of what it looks like uh, roughly on a plate. However, to calculate cost, we see in the next slide that items are selected in proportion to their share of dietary energy. So while fruits and vegetables account for about half by volume, starchy staples account for half of dietary energy. And for the total amount of dietary energy required in the healthy diet basket standard, we use 2,330 calories, which is the energy needs of an average active woman, uh, which actually turns out to be the average energy needs across different population groups. 
And to calculate the costs of a healthy diet, we select a specified number of least cost items in each food group in amounts that correspond to their calorie share. So we select two different starchy staples, three different vegetables and two fruits to get to five fruits and vegetables satisfying diversity requirements. We select one legume nut or seed and two animal source foods and then one oil or fat. So in all 11 items are selected uh, and we find the cost of those items in terms of the necessary calories to satisfy the proportionality of this basket. And I wanna note that dairy is included in animal source foods. It often comes up as um, a food group of its own in many countries, but not in all countries. Uh, so here, when we, when we find uh, the least cost items in each of these food groups, actually dairy is usually selected because it tends to be cheaper than many other animal source foods. So why am I mentioning least cost items? Next slide. A least cost healthy diet is what we use for uh, finding the cost of a healthy diet. And it what we do is to select the least expensive locally available foods at each time and place that fulfill each food group contribution. And so the food group proportions that you just saw on the last slide, they stay constant in the healthy diet basket, but the food items when, within each group are substitutable. And so within food groups, the cheapest items vary by season and by place. Next. Because the basket is based on locally available foods, the healthy diet baskets will be different in each time and place. So for example, um, the, in Senegal, we could see that in one data set, the uh, sardines form part of the animal source food group, whereas in Pakistan and Italy, chicken and milk are selected. Um, we see dates and mangoes chosen for fruits in Senegal, uh, but bananas and coconuts in Pakistan and Italy has apples and bananas. And we see onions and carrots in all three of the countries as coming up as least cost often. So you can also see here that in this example, the relative cost of each food group will vary while the calories of each stay constant. And uh, you can see here also that the starchy staples account for a small cost share, even though they are 50% um, of the calorie share. We can see the nutrient-dense non-staples are more expensive. So you can clearly start to understand why people who cannot afford the diet have starch-heavy diets. Now I'll briefly turn to the food price data we use that underlie this method. Next slide. Um, all of the cost data that we used for the global analyses came from a single comprehensive global food price data set, um, which is from the World Bank International Comparison Program, the latest version of which was from 2017. And um, it lists a large number of foods and non-alcoholic beverages across 173 countries. You can also calculate these metrics using different data, um, as long as it's retail food price data uh, from national sources in the consumer price index or from research sor sources. Uh, and we do have some tools that we've developed to help governments calculate the metrics from their own national data, as well as researchers. Next slide. And when we use this global data set, we find that the healthy diet basket costs $3.54 in 2020. 
And you can also see on this slide that uh, we also looked at the cost of different national food-based dietary guidelines. And the main point here is that really whatever definition you use in terms of what constitutes a healthy diet, uh, the, the cost is in the same ballpark and it is much more than the, uh, the international poverty line. Next slide. And to look at how many people cannot afford that cost, clearly people under the poverty line cannot, but uh, more generally, we use World Bank income distribution data and set the proportion of income available for food at 52%, which is the average percent of expenditures on food in low income countries. So we set that as the amount that can be feasibly reserved for food. And next slide. Um, Anna, we need to come to an end, thanks. Yes, this is um, the last slide, thank you. Uh, next slide is the last one. So we find uh, the indicator that 3 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet that was published by FAO last week. And you can find that more information here on our Food Prices for Nutrition Data Hub hosted at the World Bank. And the very last slide is acknowledging the whole group that has contributed to the project as well as our funders and uh, the collaboration with FAO. So thank you. Thank you so much, Anna, for, for very clearly setting forth the methodology of uh, determining um, the, the, the cost and affordability of, of healthy diets really important work. Um, we're now gonna turn to Yan Bai, who is an economist in the Global Food and Nutrition um, uh, within the World Bank Development Data Group and also with Zhejiang University School of Public Affairs. Um, he's going to discuss um, as a follow-on to Anna's presentation, the results and the implications of the global variation in diet costs and affordability. Thanks, Yan. Thank you. And also thank you, Anna, for introducing the cost and the affordability of uh, healthy diet indicators. So next, I will just continue on this topic and also go further, talk about you know, more work on the healthy diet basket, which supports the construction of the indicators at the global level. Uh, yeah, uh, please uh, go to the first, uh, the front page, please. Yeah. And uh, also talk about global variations in the indicators. Here, I particularly list out uh, two links here on the front page. I hope that uh, the, all the audience can uh, download later. Uh, the first link is the Food Prices for Nutrition Data Hub at the World Bank. And if you are also interested into this, you know, the data, download the data, please also check the World Bank Data Bank through the second link. So uh, as you know, uh, Anna just introduced in the previous uh, presentation. So next slide, please. Okay, so as mentioned by Anna, the construction of the cost of a healthy diet indicator is based on the food-based dietary guidelines or the FBDGs, which provide the required nutrients to promote overall health and prevent chronic diseases. So first we just examined whether the least cost diets following, following these FBDGs, including the healthy diet basket, which is on the left side of all the figures, and the lengthy diets, which is on the right hand of the figure. So may well meet these nutrient goals or not. So as you can see here, the macronutrient intakes can always stay within the acceptable distribution ranges or the AMDRs. And because we are selecting the least cost food items, 
the protein intakes is close to the lower bound of AMDR. And the carbohydrate for most FBDGs is near the upper bound. But the Elancy diet is a slightly different. It has a lower intake for carbs compared to others and a higher intake for fats or the lipids. And next slide, please. Then let's look at you know, um, uh, the performance of these diets in terms of meeting micronutrient adequacy goals. According to our study, all FBDGs or the food-based dietary guidelines may well meet the micronutrient adequacy requirement. For example, the mean adequacy ratio or the MAR for the HDB is 0.94 on the left, left side, which is very close to the MAR of 0.95 for the eat lengthy diet, which is on the right side. But the calcium may be an exceptional case here. It usually has a lower adequacy ratio if dairy is not required as a separate food group, which is the case for the HDB, the healthy diet basket. However, some recent research also suggests that the calcium required, uh, requirements used in these adequacy calculations may be higher than most populations actual needs. So, and also cultural concerns re regarding dietary patterns are also important for the HDB, which is applied globally. So eventually dairy is not a required food group in the basket. Next slide, please. And uh, another issue that people are also very interested is whether the least cost diets following FBDGs are also as sustainable as the Elancy diet. And the answer is yes. As reviewed in this figure, least cost diets following the FBDGs produce a minimum level of greenhouse gas emissions. And there's no substantial difference between the HDB healthy diet basket and eat Lancet diet. However, the variation for HDB is uh, larger than the eat Lancet diet. Next slide, please. And alongside with our main diet cost indicator, which is the cost of a healthy diet, the Food Prices for Nutrition also launched the other two diet cost indicators as a reference. So first, the cost of an energy sufficient diet or the cost of calorie adequacy, the COCA, measures the minimum cost to meet energy requirements using the least expensive available starchy stable food in each country. And the cost of nutrient adequacy the Kona measures the minimum cost to meet energy and nutrient requirements. And also for the Kona indicator, food substitution is allowed across food groups. Next, I will introduce the global variation in diet cost and affordability indicators. Next slide, please. So first of all, assessing seasonality for diet cost may guide national policy towards resilient food markets and systems. Applying the harmonic modeling technique, we detected significant seasonality for the cost of nutrient adequacy in Tanzania, Malawi, and Ethiopia. As shown in the figure, starchy stables contribute the largest energy portion in these diets. And starchy stables, together with animal source food, legumes, nuts, and seeds, 
are the major contributors in terms of die cost. However, regarding the seasonality of the die cost, it is primarily driven by fruits and vegetables. At least this is the case in both Malawi and Ethiopia. We believe people will have similar findings for the cost of a healthy diet in these countries as well. Next slide, please. On the affordability side, we applied another indicator comparing the diet cost to real wages in India, which reveals a gender gap in affordability. The lambda figure shows that the real wages for both men and women have increased significantly over the decade between 2001 and 2011. Meanwhile, the cost of recommended diets or the healthy diets as a percentage to daily wages in India was consistently higher for men than women. The diet's cost is about 50 to 60% of men's daily wages, but 80 to 90% of women's daily wages. Next slide, please. And we, next slide, sorry. And we also see gender and age disparities when we dive into the cost at the previous slide, thank you, into the cost for different demographic groups. Because not all people have the same calorie and nutrient requirements. The diet cost is the highest for adolescent boys and girls, but this high cost is not only because of the higher energy need, if taking the cost per calorie as the outcome, we find that all women groups face higher costs comparing to their uh, male peers, especially for the adolescent girls and the senior women groups. As the next step, we will further advance this research agenda using uh, the cost of healthy diet technique. Next. So finally, we will talk about some like data and method limitations for our current work that might lead to our effort as the next step. First of all, although retail food price data are routinely collected for the construction of CPI or food CPI in the world, but not every country publishes the price data. For the countries which do publish the retail food price data, usually only a very limited subset of food items and groups are available. Meanwhile, international agencies publish food price data in their early warning systems, and it covers most low and, uh, and uh, uh, middle-income countries in the world. However, in terms of the food coverage, it is still primarily focused on the starchy-stable products, although expansions have been carried out in the recent years. Next, please. And second, based on the die cost estimation in the reference year on 2017, uh, uh, we currently use food CPI or general CPI to estimate die costs starting from 2018. The indicators will be accordingly adjusted until the next round ICP data become available as the next reference year. However, as we observed, since the start of the COVID-19, food prices for different food groups have shown different changing rates over time. More importantly, most of the nutritious food groups have higher growth than breads and cereals. 
So considering the difference between um, uh, food group allocations in the healthy diet basket and in the CPI calculation, which usually reflects real food consumptions, this finding implies an, an underestimate of diet costs in 2020 and onwards. And this underestimation might be even higher or bigger in lower income countries. And the final slide. So, but I believe both limitations as summarized here can be swiftly addressed by larger global effort for retail food prices, collection and reporting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jan, for this deeper dive in, into the work and, and thinking about some of the limitations and, and future work. Um, so let me, I'm sure you're going to get some questions about, uh, about some of these points you raised. And just a reminder to the audience, please do go ahead and submit your questions. We'll be moving to the Q&A session soon. And you can do so on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. Um, now we're moving back to a IFPRI colleague of mine, Derek Hetty, works as a senior research fellow at IFPRI and has been closely involved with this work. And, and Derek will talk to us about what, what this research will really mean for future research. Uh, he, his title of his presentation is The Frontiers of Research on Food Policy Based on Consumer Prices, Diet Costs, and Affordability. Over to you, Derek. Sorry, everyone, I was having a little problem uh, sharing screen there. Uh, thank you, Charlotte. Um, yeah, so Charlotte said, I'm gonna talk about sort of frontiers of research in this area on prices, diet costs, and affordability. Sorry, and my Derek, brief here, there we go, that's good. Okay, and uh, yeah, my brief here is really to um, get to the issue that Jan was talking about. How does this sort of mass availability of retail food prices, either from the ICP or from national sources, help us answer policy questions that, re that really matter. So uh, research questions, yes, but uh, research uh, for policy. And it's somewhat peculiar that food prices for nutrition research in uh, lower case is new, but I think to a large extent it is. Uh, this, this kind of research has um, really been only going on for a few years um, through some of the projects that were already mentioned that is now you know, really being done at scale through uh, the food prices for nutrition work. And I'm going to structure my talk around a sort of micro, meso, macro um, framework, um, and I'll talk about, you know, why it's sort of new. Uh, so at the micro level, economists have studied food demand and food poverty, but not really done so through a nutrition lens. Um, so food demand, we've been studying food demand for over 100 years in, in uh, economics. Uh, but, for example, not really thinking about nutritious food groups uh, or thinking too much about the uh, micronutrient content of food, for example. And we've been studying food poverty, but that, uh, those food poverty lines have really been focused on calories, um, not, not on nutritious diets, as I'll talk about in a minute. And then nutritionists, of course, have um, focused a lot on food choice. Uh, but less so choice under scarcity. There are uh, important exceptions to, to that, the work of uh, Adam Drunowski, Nicole Darman, and others. Uh, and of course, many free uh, nutritionist colleagues are always working in areas where people are making decisions on choice under scarcity and looking at integrated nutrition and social protection programs, um, for example. But we haven't really been doing monitoring at scale, uh, which is uh, an analysis at scale, which is really what this project is about. 
And then there's a sort of meso level or market or food environment level. And agricultural economists um, in, in, in that arena have really been focused on farm gate prices and value chains. Um, but consumers' engagement with physical markets or their broader food environment has really been poorly studied to date, um, especially by uh, economists, I would say. Uh, we studied a lot on wholesale markets, a lot of value chain studies, but not really looking at markets through a nutrition lens. And then at the macro level, um, IFBRI and other institutions are in, uh, in economics are well known for doing simulation models at different scales. We're talking about uh, local, uh, you know, subnational models, national models, regional models, and global models like IMPACT and RAGRADEF, which are uh, two models that IFBRI is well known for. Um, they've done a lot of work on uh, nutrition in the last few years. That's really scaled up, but in the distant past, not so much. Um, and those models have not yet said much on uh, interventions for, that will uh, impact the cost of healthy diets with a few recent exceptions. Um, so there's much more work to be done there too. So there's quite a lot going on now and in the last and, and few recent years, but this research really is new and there are certainly many uh, frontiers to talk about. So I'm gonna give two examples on the micro front. Uh, one is recent work led by Christy Mart with uh, Sherman Robinson, um, Channing Arndt, uh, myself, and Anna Herforth. Uh, this discussion paper out, which I'll show at the end. And this is really um, talking about food poverty as if nutrition really mattered, right? So we're, uh, and we've done a lot of work in this project and others, and uh, the FAO has been pricing affordability of a healthy diet. And that is like measuring food poverty, um, but it's not taking into account consumer preferences. So uh, when economists measure poverty, they try and take uh, account the uh, food and non-food preferences uh, of the poor. Uh, so standard poverty measurement uses those pre preferences, but um, food affordability measures uh, generally do not. But the standard poverty measurement uh, uses an energy-based food poverty line. And that's a tradition going back a long time, even though um, there were exceptions. Um, an economist 100 years ago um, consulted nutritionist colleagues and said, what's a healthy diet? And they responded with a, a, an earlier form of something um, like the healthy diet that Anna was talking about. But generally, when we've measured poverty, we've been very focused on calories, uh, sort of a survival diet. And in this paper, Mart et al. argue, first of all, a healthy diet is a basic need. So we shouldn't be thinking of basic needs as just calories. Second, that there are good methods for incorporating preferences into the cost of a healthy diet, this kind of new poverty line. Third, that uh, kind of obviously energy-based poverty lines where um, consumers are, are you know, really focused on just achieving a calorie target, those are gonna result in even non-poor households having multiple micronutrient deficiencies. Um, so as one example, uh, nutritionists have used a number saying that 2 billion people around the world suffer from micronutrient deficiencies, but the $1.90 per day poverty line, for example, um, says that maybe 700 million people uh, are poor. So there's, there's sort of, and that's true, these sort of discrepancies are true at the national uh, level too. And then fourth, uh, in Myanmar, uh, which is the focus country of this paper, we find that switching to a healthy diet poverty line leads to a doubling of the estimated poverty rate. And that's the graph you can see on the left. So the um, sort of uh, national energy-based um, poverty line puts the poverty headcount at 20% in Myanmar. When you switch to a healthy diet, it goes to 48%. So a huge jump and a particularly striking jump in um, urban areas in proportional terms 
uh, increasing more than fourfold from 8% to 27%. So we strongly feel this is an area for future research, in some sense, um, repeat or refine, um, extend uh, globally, uh, if possible, um, but also locally with other country case studies. And the takeaway here is that when nutrition is a basic need, the world is a lot poorer than we think. And I think that's also been shown in the SOFI reports and in, in other studies that uh, the Food Prices for Nutrition Project has been engaged with. And then another micro example um, is looking at food demand and social protection through a nutrition lens. Um, as Will mentioned, uh, costing uh, nutrient adequate diets has been used um, in sort of the social protection scene in both uh, rich and poor countries for some time, um, but not so much uh, a healthy diet and not so much in terms of um, detailed sort of simulations of social protection scenarios. So one weakness of previous demand studies, is they haven't really been focused on nutrition, uh, even in terms of simple things like um, nutritionally meaningful um, food groups uh, that might require, for example, disaggregating food groups into something like dark green leafy vegetables uh, versus other vegetables. So here we try and take a more uh, explicit nutrition lens, and we also translate food estimated household food consumption into uh, micronutrient gaps as well. And then we're, uh, this specific work is modeling the impacts of COVID-19 shocks, and then on top of those shocks, adding different social protection scenarios, uh, all worth uh, $13 uh, per month um, to pro provide a, an, an equal comparison. So we've um, done this kind of research in various countries, but I'm, I'm gonna give an example here from um, Bangladesh that's worked on with the World Food Program. Uh, we find that healthy food consumption gaps are huge. So that's the same conclusion that the Lancet um, reached in many country case studies. And then we look at um, the different constraints. Why is healthy food consumption, why are these healthy food consumption gaps so large? Um, the first is really poverty. Uh, poverty constraints are huge. Uh, as Anna mentioned, incomes are just not enough to cover healthy diets for many people. And as I showed in the previous slide, uh, healthy diet poverty lines uh, are much higher than say the $1.90 poverty line or even the national poverty lines used in many countries. A second constraint is price constraints. Um, so again, as was previously mentioned, fruits, vegetables, animal source foods, um, they are often relatively cheap sources of micronutrients or high quality protein, but they're expensive sources of calories. And so they add a lot to the cost of a, a healthy diet, uh, but those prices do vary across countries. So maybe there's scope to bring those prices down. And then we find preference constraints too. So uh, in the demand studies we uh, implement, we tend to find relatively weak demand for pulses and vegetables, even though those are always present in, uh, or nearly always present in food-based dietary guidelines. Um, and so there it's more a preference problem than just a, a, a simple economic constraint. And then actually we find there are also social protection constraints. So when we, um, in the simulation model, allocate households $13 worth of either cash, unfortified rice, or a food voucher that can be used on different foods, we find that this $13 per month, uh, per household per month transfer just isn't enough to make a big dent in um, uh, gaps, whether it's consumption gaps or micronutrient gaps, because the extent of sort of healthy diet poverty and the extent of um, the, the severity of the COVID shock is so large that it just doesn't make much impression. Uh, one exception is fortified rice. Um, I guess no surprise, mechanically that will um, reduce um, micronutrient inadequacy. 
Um, and so that does seem like a good idea in the face of shocks. And we sort of know from previous shocks that actually one of the main impacts of shocks is that people cut back on um, more expensive nutrient-dense fruits, vegetables, and animal source foods. So fortifying a staple in um, those kind of circumstances and, and maybe even normal times uh, arguably does make sense. So there's sort of a mixed picture here, but um, arguably one takeaway is a bit pessimistic. When nutrition is a basic need, we need bigger social protection, we need more money, and we also need better social protection in terms of uh, more nutrition sensitive transfers. Turning to the meso level, one surprising aspect of agricultural economics in particular is that there's been more work on supermarkets in low and middle income countries uh, then the markets that poor people actually use, especially uh, rural people, but even urban people tend to use supermarkets much less than uh, wet markets and other types of shops. In rural Ethiopia a few years ago, we did a survey of households, but also surveyed markets, and we basically found that poor people in rural Ethiopia live with poor markets. Those markets have weak infrastructure, they have very limited diversity of products. For example, only half of those markets sold dairy products. They have um, striking seasonality consistent with uh, what Ian showed where he also looked at prices in Ethiopia. And those markets also have very high relative prices. And by relative prices here, I'm referring to a study that I did with uh, Harold Alderman, where we price each food using the International Comparison Program data uh, in caloric terms, and then compare it to, again, in caloric terms to the cost of a staple food. So if you look at the graph on the right here, uh, when it says eggs 29, that means that an egg calorie is 29 times as expensive as a starchy staple calorie. So you can imagine that it's extremely unattractive for the poor to diversify out of staples into things like dairy, fruits and veg, uh, and, animals, and other animal source foods. Um, and in at the global study, we found that um, those relative caloric prices were certainly high, but in, in sort of remote areas of rural Ethiopia, we found they were even higher. Uh, so that's what we mean when we say that poor people live in with poor markets. Um, the urban food environment is even more complex. I think Marie mentioned shift and uh, there are other CGR programs that are going to look at urban environments, urban environments a bit more. And there are already uh, more studies on the urban um, food environment than the rural food environment. And the complexities there involve quality and price differences across different kinds of vendors and also more uh, access to unhealthy foods and exposure to the marketing of unhealthy foods. Um, and as Marie mentioned, yeah, there's going to be a lot of this kind of research um, coming into play soon in the one CGR. And there are a lot of really interesting questions there that we don't really yet know the answer to. For example, do weak food environments cause weak food demand? And we find these correlations in Ethiopia. Or is it the other way around that people are just poor and there's therefore the markets for nutrition, uh, nutritious foods don't really emerge? And then second, how do food environments influence the double burden of malnutrition? So we're not just dealing with undernutrition, but uh, we're dealing with overnutrition and, uh, or overweight and obesity as well. Derek, and thanks, then for, can, thanks for wrapping up. Thanks. Okay. Uh, and then can integrated multifaceted interventions improve local food systems? And then finally, how can we regularize and standardize market quality uh, measurements? So there's a missing middle problem, and we still don't know the scope for a meso policy level. I'll quickly wrap up um, with some uh, a macro example. I'll skip to the next uh, slide. Um, so methods matter, but the basic finding that there are 3 billion people around the world cannot afford a, a healthy diet is, is going to be robust, whether it's 2.8 billion, 3.2 billion, et cetera. So we're actually faced with a 3 billion people question. 
and that is how to help the masses in the world that can't afford a healthy diet. And I'm sort of referring here to um, a book uh, written by uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Harold Altman, Harold, Harold Altman called The 1.5 Billion People Question, which was referring more to poverty. But now we're really facing a 3 billion uh, people question. And arguably in a decade or two, it could be 4 billion, given all the shocks we're facing, climate change, population growth, and so on. And so in some preliminary work, we found, well, economic growth is just not going to close those gaps very quickly. Um, so that's a real challenge. I've already shown you that social protection is likely going to be inadequate. It was inadequate for 1.5 billion, uh, the sort of $1.90 per day for a decade ago. It's uh, inadequate for sure for 3 billion. Um, so there's a key question there of how we can scale up protection and maximize its nutritional impacts. And then there's important questions around food policies and what's the scope to reduce the real cost of healthy diets. And just a quick remark here that healthy foods are often perishable, meaning that their prices are influenced by local supply. Um, so there's potentially scope if we can get more investment in non-staple foods um, to bring the price down of those non-staple foods and reduce um, the cost of a healthy diet. Great. Thank, thank um, you so, so much. Thank you so much, Derek. I think we're going to have to move on, but I, I really appreciate the, the setting out some of the implications of this work and, and how we now need to take it forward also for um, concrete policy uh, implications. So um, our last speaker is Cindy Holman. She is a senior economist at the Food and Agricultural Organization. And she's going to speak about the global monitoring of uh, cost and affordability of healthy diets with a particular lens um, through some of the UN uh, food reports. Thanks, Cindy. Great. Um, can you see my slides all right? Yep. Okay, great. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me here. Um, I wanted to talk to a bit today about how the UN um, is monitoring globally the cost and affordability of healthy diet and also how we're starting to look at um, policy analysis to inform um, agri-food systems to transform so that we can have lower cost and more affordable priced foods. So I was speaking today mostly about the state of food security and nutrition in the world as we call the SOPI report. Um, and as many of you know, um, in this report, we monitor food security and nutrition trends around the world. And since 2017, we've been monitoring them within the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and that means also looking at the SDG2 food security and nutrition. And so increasingly, we're looking at this connection between food security and nutrition um, and trying to understand the actions that are needed to address the challenges around these links. And this is what brings us squarely to the issue of um, diets and the quality of diets. Um, we know that the quality of diet um, is a very important factor in terms of many of the, the um, undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, overweight and deficiencies. So poor quality diets is critical. So in um, 2020, our report, we teamed up with Tufts um, and the Food Price Remission Project um, many of the people that are here in this meeting were very excited to, to work with them because what we wanted to do was to look at how we could estimate the cost and affordability of a healthy diet around the world and also how this compares to an energy um, sufficient diet or a nutrient adequate diet. So 2020 was really our publication that really kind of um, put this agenda on a global level. Um, in, in terms of the big number of 3 million people that cannot afford a healthy diet. 
Um, and it really brought a uh, global attention because the SOFI report has quite a global outreach. Um, it also reaches um, high level UN security uh, councils, the UN security general, sec secretary generals, the member countries around the world, um, and it has quite a large outreach. So it has a, a quite a um, big audience in terms of advocacy. So in 2020, um, it was a very important um, publication that brought that global attention. So FAO um, is very committed to looking at how we can measure and systematically monitor the cost and affordability of healthy diets. So if we look at the last three SOFIs now, we've done um, updates to these estimates, and we think it's very important that we continue to monitor the cost and affordability of a health diet globally. Um, so right now it, it is included in terms of with our other indicators, which are the hunger indicator, which is prevalence of undernourishment, as well as our FIAS, which is the food inexperience um, scale that measures access. So we do think that um, you know, this is a critical link between food security and nutrition. If people can't even afford a healthy diet, they won't have the option to make that choice. So, so it is an important indicator that we're looking at. Um, we are very much interested in, in seeing how we can improve um, and refine this indicator. It is a new indicator, as been mentioned by the other colleagues. We have a two-track approach in terms of monitoring it. Um, what, what we're doing right now is in the 2021 SOFI and the 2022, we're updating the 2020 SOFI estimates, which were based on the ICP 2017 with consumer price indexes from around the country. So one thing that is a problem is, is that it was already mentioned is that we don't have this continuous um, data set for nutritious food prices. And that's one of the things that we're in discussion with, with the World Bank. Um, we've got a background paper that's coming out this next month on methods for how we can start to improve um, and maybe have a collaborative agreement to increase um, the availability of this nutritious food price data on a more regular basis. And so that's one of the, the challenges going forward, um, but we do um, look forward to, to refining this further um, because we can't really wait for the ICP data that comes out every five years. The data does exist, the price data does exist at a national level. So it's about a global partnership to make sure that we can access that. So that's one of the challenges going forward, um, which we want to be working on um, with, with our colleagues. The other thing that we're doing in terms of global monitoring is we have four um, regional overview of food security nutrition reports. These are um, basically what we call regional SOFIs, and they're produced in Africa. One is in Asia and Pacific, the other is Europe, Central um, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, and the Near East and North Africa. So these five regional SOFI pro, um, reports from this year are also going to be importing, um, monitoring and reporting on the cost and affordability of a healthy diet. So we're very excited about that. Um, and this will give more contextualized analysis to the regions in terms of these indicators and some applied analysis. So this is another effort um, in terms of reaching out in terms of bringing awareness about the cost and affordability and also reaching policymakers and stakeholders around the world in different regions um, in terms of how we, we are progressing 
Um, the other thing within our 2020 report, we also looked at um, besides the high cost of a healthy diet, we also see that current consumption patterns um, are actually have a very much a hidden cost in terms of um, greenhouse gas emissions and also health. So what was important is that we looked at the valuation of the climate and the health change costs related to healthy diets. Um, and one of this key findings of this was that shifting to healthy diets that include sustainability considerations could also help contribute to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, um, as well as to reduce the costs related to the health um, problems that come from unhealthy diets. If we look just specifically at this figure here, we're looking at um, the current food consumption patterns, which are the, the, um, the first column, about 21 to 37% of greenhouse gas emissions come from our diet related costs in terms of consumption. So what we've shown is that if shifting to um, healthy diets, we can save um, tremendously in terms of the societal costs, even related to the societal cost to greenhouse gas emissions. So if we look at uh, um, projecting to 2030, um, $1.7 billion, million dollars is um, a trillion dollars, sorry, $1.7 trillion per year will be the cost related to cons current consumption patterns um, in, in terms of um, greenhouse gas emissions. So if we shift to healthy diets, uh, we can actually reduce that. And we looked at four different types of diets. And I understand even the healthy diet basket is very similar to, to one of those diets. So the, the, the main point is, is that, you know, it's not just about um, the, the looking at the cost, high cost of a healthy diet, there's actually high cost to our current consumption patterns and that we can actually reduce those costs by shifting to healthy diets. We also looked at the societal costs related to um, the health costs. And those are very similar, like $1.3 trillion per year, given current consumption in terms of health costs and lost productivity, um, in terms of health costs related to the health services. So by shifting to healthy diets, we can also reduce those up to 97%, those direct costs. Um, we also are looking at, you know, what are the drivers behind the high cost of nutritious foods? As we saw with our 2020 report, um, this global analysis showed that you know, the healthy diet costs around the world are five times greater than a diet just based on um, dietary energy and 60% higher if you look at just nutrient adequates. So clearly the high cost of food is something that we need to address the healthy diets and the nutritious foods. So FAO is focusing our attention on how we can bring down the cost of nutritious foods so that we can make um, healthy diets more affordable. So we're focusing on this. We did an analysis looking at where the cost drivers were coming for, through, from, from nutritious foods. And we find that they're throughout our food systems. So it's in our, in our low productivity related to nutritious foods like fruits and vegetables, but also high risks related to the perishable nature of, of fruits and vegetables and some of these more nutritious foods and the food waste and loss. 
So in our production from productivity through our supply chains, um, there's these problems that are, that are in, leading to higher cost of nutritious foods. Um, also, we do need to look at the healthy environment though, because um, you know, the, the cost of, um, I mean, the, sorry, the, new, the people that are, are having to um, have cheap food because of the, the work environment, needing fast foods. So we have to look also at our environment. So we've looked at a few things around what we need to do to transform our food systems. And again, we identify a number of things that need to be done. We need to look at nutrition sensitive investments. We need to look at policy investment across supply chains to invest, to enhance the efficiencies. Um, and we need to look at trade, um, also consumer um, policies to help support behavioral change toward that. And we need to pursue diets that are, that are healthy diets that are also good for the environment. Um, we also looked at um, the last few years is we know that we're not on track to ending hunger, food insecurity and malnutrition related to the SDG2s um, in terms of the, the hunger has been growing since 2017. And if we look at many countries around the world, um, some of them have been increasing since 2014. So we're off track. And we also see that our moderate and severe food insecurity measures are also increasing. Um, and we identified a number of drivers um, that are behind this. That includes drivers that are external to our agri-food systems with conflict, climate, and also economic downturns. But there's also the driver which is leading to these problems is the cost and affordability of healthy diet. Um, and what we've done through our analysis is see that that many of the countries that are affected by these major drivers, um, whether it's conflict, climate, economic downturns, or also the high inequality that makes these worse, is that um, countries affected by these drivers have the highest percentage of the population who cannot afford a healthy diet. So there's this interaction going on um, that is, is making the challenge even more um, in terms of ensuring food security um, so and nutrition. Please, please wrap up. We want to get to Q&A. Thanks. Yeah. And then um, in our 2022 report, um, we also see that we can look at this measure globally, the cost and affordability, and we can see the impact um, in terms of the COVID pandemic on the cost and affordability of healthy diet. So in this, year, this report that was just relaunched last week, we see that um, about 3.1 billion so the increase in consumer prices in the last, uh, in 2020, had a direct effect in terms of making the healthy diet more costly and unaffordable. One problem though, is that this measure still doesn't include the, the shock of the COVID pandemic on, on income. So it's just picking up the, the hyperinflation and the increase in the consumer food prices. So this is something that we need to work on is making sure that we can um, capture this more. It's likely that the COVID pandemic had even a greater effect because we're not capturing the effect of income yet. Um, we're also just to, to wrap up, um, you know, in this year, we're also trying to delve a bit deeper. So we're looking at, um, you know, how we can repurpose um, food and agricultural policy much of the, the policy that's now supporting agriculture 
is not aligned with supporting healthy diets. A lot of it goes to support um, staples um, like rice and wheat and sugar. Um, and so one thing that we've done in this report is we're saying that even with the same amount of money, um, we can actually achieve uh, a lower the cost of a healthy diet and make diets more affordable. So we teamed up with IFPRI and also in-house to do and start to integrate this healthy diet indicator into our programming, into our modeling about um, how we can make um, repurpose food and agriculture. Um, I think we're a bit out of time, so I'll wrap up and stop there. And if there's more questions, we can come to it later. Thanks very much, Cindy, and also for bringing that repurposing work to everybody's attention. We, we might consider a separate seminar on, the, on, on that topic. Um, so let's move straight away into the Q&A session. Um, I'm gonna start with a few questions that have come in on the methodology. So let's, uh, let me direct this to, um, to Anna. So, so the question is whether the, um, the, the, the low cost, um, items that you've identified um, for costing uh, affordable diets, whether that, do we know whether the, those are actually also the most commonly consumed items? It's, it's a good question. Great question, thank you. Um, so they are commonly consu consumed at least to an extent because their prices are collected in retail markets. And the price data that we're using from the World Bank International Comparison Program, ICP, um, ultimately comes in partnership from the countries themselves and using um, data collection methods in the markets to, to track the price of foods that are generally avail available and commonly consumed in those markets. So uh, yes, to a degree, however, are the least cost items necessarily the most preferred food items? No. Uh, so you may have a situation where the most preferred item is uh, rice, but the cheapest starchy staple is maize, for example. Um, so we do actually have a, a different metric uh, that we have been uh, working on, especially led by Christy Mart at IFPRI, um, the uh, cost of a healthy diet incorporating food preferences, which would use a longer list of foods and weight them in the proportion by which they are uh, purchased typically in markets so that uh, we would have a cost of a healthy diet that is um, more reflective of actual food preferences. And of course, when we do that, the cost is higher. Uh, the least cost diet is really intends to be the floor. What's the lowest possible way you could possibly meet the dietary guidelines, even if it's not the most preferred items. And uh, when we incorporate food preferences, the cost is raised. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, there's a couple of questions from a regional angle. So maybe um, I can direct these to you, um, Cindy, because you mentioned the, the regional um, SOFIs. So, and both of them actually pertain to the same region. Is there an average Caribbean cost um, or a healthy basket, healthy diet basket? Um, and, and what might be the composition of that? Um, and then is there any information about the current situation in South America and more specific, specifically Colombia? Yeah, thanks. So in terms of our global um, estimates in the SOFIE report, we do um, present the analysis by region, sub-region, and also country. 
So if you go to the Sophie Annex 3, you can find the, the details in terms of the cost from 2017 up to 2020. Um, and you can also see the affordability measures. So we do have that. Um, and again, maybe um, one thing that I can also highlight is that in Latin America, you know, it has one of the costs, Latin America, the Caribbean, it has one of the highest costs of a healthy diet. And they're very interested in terms of looking a bit deeper. So we're in discussion right now with both the Caribbean, our FAO offices in that sub-region and also in at the global, at the regional level, where we're going to be doing pilots in, in some of these countries to look at a sub-national cost and affordability. And the upcoming report this year for the 22 for the Latin America Caribbean is spotlighting the cost and affordability of healthy diets. So we hope to have quite a lot more detailed information and analysis coming forward on those. But again, you know, there is a lot of interest in Latin American Caribbean because of the very high uh, in, increase in terms of overweight and obesity and the high cost uh, and affordability of healthy diets is a very critical one. Great, thanks, thanks very much, Cindy. Um, Marie, uh, some questions for you, um, two very interesting questions. Um, one is, could you please comment on, on the benefits of switching to whole staple grain flours um, for a starting point for urban environments where they may not have enough choice to eat more fruit and vegetables? That's one question. And then another question from uh, Josh Bizzik is uh, are processed and red meats included in these recommendations? If so, what's the rationale given that the World Health Organization recently categorized them as carcinogenic? Sorry, uh, was the second one for me too? Uh, yeah, maybe you wanna comment on both of those. Okay, uh, you'll have to repeat the second one. For fruit and vegetable being replaced by whole grains, um, I think it's uh, it's it's not really um, uh, probably a very good idea. Whole grains are healthy, of course, and, and they do provide uh, fiber and some micronutrients. But the evidence on fruit and vegetable it re is really strong on how much they prevent non-communicable diseases of, of a diversity of non-communicable diseases and. Um, so they, they can't really be replaced by other food groups in, from that perspective. Uh, they also uh, have some micronutrients that are uh, essential and, and not necessarily present in, in whole grain. So I, I don't think that's really possible. Um, I didn't get the, the, um, the question on, on animal source foods. Yeah, the, the question there is the WHO has has classified processed and red meats as as a carcinogenic. So how is that being reflected in 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 the work you're doing uh, with regard to these uh, diet baskets? Yeah, they I'm sure Anna that they are not included <laughs> uh, because yeah they are poison. They are they are considered uh, dangerous, and so I'm sure when you and they would not be probably among the cheapest sources of animal source foods. But I, I think Anna can can complement. Yeah, I can clarify. So we do exclude processed meats um, from the items that can be selected for a healthy diet basket because they are not recommended by the WHO globally. So they're excluded from consideration within a healthy diet. And uh, as far as red meats, 
um, the WHO recommendation is not completely excluding them. It's rather an upper limit on the amount of red meat per week as a maximum of 500 grams per week. And uh, the amounts, so within the healthy diet basket, um, the caloric amounts that would be um, devoted to animal source foods are divided into two. And typically, if a red meat happens to be among the cheapest items, the amount that would be included in the healthy diet basket is below the uh, maximum um, that is the, the limit by the WHO. Great. Thank, thanks for specifying that. Um, we have a question for Jan here, um, and this gets to some of the other questions um, beyond affordability, right? It's a, a, this person writes, Tajik women spend approximately two to three hours a day uh, preparing bread. So once white bread loaves began to be sold in, in little shops, it led to tremendous labor uh, savings of women. Is this convenience a factor in the cost of a healthy diet? So, um, yeah. So currently um, the convenience is not considered um, um, into the method of the, the cost of a healthy diet. Uh, and also, as well as the food preference as Anna uh, mentioned uh, uh, in, uh, in the past. But I think in the future, definitely there will be more research work, very interesting uh, research work uh, devoted into this uh, part. I think Derek also mentioned in, in, in his slides, talking about the frontiers of research in this domain. And uh, I think maybe Will or Derek can also comment on this. How do you see the con uh, convenience to be uh, factored into the method in the future? And it clearly has a gender lens as well, right? Uh, exactly. Do, do, do one of you want to come in on that uh, as well? Derek, maybe? Uh, actually, I think Will should come in here. I think uh, he and uh, sure. have been working on this, this precise issue. Yes, we have a, a quite an active effort to try to quantify the costs of food acquisition and meal preparation. Uh, so far, we've been looking mainly at fuel costs um, because the time use data is actually really limited. So we are definitely hoping to build in uh, cost of healthy diet metrics that include meal preparation. Our first effort on that was for the UN Food Systems Summit uh, using the basic plate idea that the WFP had championed um, and now extending that to the whole diet is a big frontier for us, yeah. Great, thank you. And, and Will, while you're up on the screen, maybe uh, this is a good question to direct to you. It's, it has to do with current events. Um, the question is in which countries do you anticipate the potential effect of blocked global food supplies caused by the crisis in Ukraine to hit consumers the most? And maybe let's put a nutritional uh, lens on that uh, question as well. So where do you see really the biggest impact in terms of uh, falling back on nutritional outcomes as a result of this crisis? Yeah, so, so in terms of the direct bilateral trading partners for Russian exports of grain, oils, and also fertilizer, and then the uh, Ukrainian exports of vegetable oils and, and uh, especially wheat, you know, those go to the trading partners across the Black Sea, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, especially the WFP procurement for food aid, um, severely disrupted uh, even before the invasion occurred because the forecast of the invasion was so clear and, uh, and caused, you know, tremendous disruption for those countries that I just mentioned and the WFP's procurement that I just mentioned. But I think the, 
immediate stress of that is to some degree easing in global commodity markets right now um, and uh, supply response adjusting to different sources uh, and switching to different types of vegetable oil as well as different starchy staples uh, has helped a little bit. Clearly, the focus of this project is to think about all of the food chains, the value chains, the supply chains uh, for fruits and vegetables, fish and other animal source foods, um, and, uh, and legumes, nuts, and seeds, which are, you know, we've been able to show were very much affected by uh, COVID labor disruptions, um, as well as the world commodity shocks that propagate across from the Ukraine uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine to so many other uh, effects of uh, climate emergency, of um, conflict elsewhere, uh, of course, greatly, greatly exacerbated by the macroeconomic shocks uh, in the countries where government mismanagement is most severe. So that's the real crisis is when a government loses the ability to manage um, its exchange rate, its uh, uh, social safety nets, um, and, and that's where the flashpoints have been. Great. Thank, thanks. Thanks very much, Will, for uh, answering that question. Um, Derek, here's a question that I think is 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 really merits uh, a, a good analysis. So, I, one of the slides of uh, of one of one of your presentations um, showed that a more vegetarian and a vegan diet is healthier. Plus is uh, more sustainable from an environmental perspective. So, so this person, however, is asking whether the cost of a vegan diet takes into account the increasing costs uh, and associated with that, the decreasing availability of land due to competing interests for that land and growing population. Uh, tough question to answer. Um, I do know that uh, if we colleagues, unfortunately, we don't have a, uh, any of the uh, sort of macroeconomic modelers um, on the on the call. So I think the the best thing I can do is sort of point the uh, the question to some of the work that's coming out from the impact model, where they've been trying to look at the uh, environmental impacts of sort of a convergence towards. Um, like for example, the Eat Lancet diet, at least the flexitarian diet, and I'm actually not sure um, about the vegan diet, but I do know that the impact team is, is working on this issue and may have some publications out. Okay, uh, great. Um, thanks very much. This is a question um, from Pamela Madududu, um, um, who is a PhD uh, candidate. And, and she's asking sort of about the different strategies for urban and, and rural populations. Um, she writes, we know that it's a huge challenge for both rural and urban people, especially low income groups to afford healthy diets. What strategies can be adopted by countries in shaping the markets to respond by providing healthy diets? And how do these differ, right? Because urban areas depend mostly on supermarkets, whereas in rural areas, people still depend mainly on, on markets and, and, and food produced locally. So what are the best strategies for urban versus uh, rural settings here to make diets more healthy diets more affordable? So maybe that's a, a good question for, let me know which one of you would like to come in on that. I, I imagine everybody has something to say on this question. I think I could probably start and then, uh, I, like you said, I think everyone could probably chip in um, and I'm sure Marie's team is looking at this in uh, SHIFT as well as other One CGR initiatives. 
I think in rural areas, um, you know, one area of research, you know, as I sort of mentioned this work on rural food markets and um, you know, poor people live with, with poor markets. So I think one extension there we've been thinking about is how to improve local food systems. And, and one finding also from Ethiopia, we tend to find that actually community diversity of production uh, tends to be more strongly associated with um, uh, household uh, consumption diversity than diversity from their own farm. And that makes sense. You know, that's sort of obvious, uh, at, at least to agricultural economists, because we know that farmers are very land constrained, very labor constrained, resource constrained. So they, they're not living in autarkies. They can't produce everything they need to eat. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the markets they're using are not great. They don't always supply what they need at, a, at an affordable price. So I think, you know, one area for potential exploration is not only broadening agricultural investments to diversify non-stable foods, but actually looking at the physical markets themselves, um, at the trade dimension, um, but also the, you know, the, the sort of wholesale and wet markets where uh, poor people operate. There haven't been too many interventions um, that have uh, really tried to improve the efficacy of those uh, local markets. So that's kind of a response for um, rural areas and maybe others can chip in on that the issue of urban food markets, which is, I think, Great. is more common. Uh, Anna, why don't you come in on, on, on that part of it? Yeah, sure. To complement what Derek was saying, um, I guess one clarification is just that in both urban and rural, markets are really important for people. Even among farmers who produce a lot of food, um, own production for most people in the world, the vast majority, is not really a viable way to supply all the food groups uh, that are needed every day of the year. Uh, so markets are really important, uh, even in rural areas. Um, that being said, you know some of the problems with uh, markets that Derek brought up, and just simply the fact that for many people, these diets are not affordable in the market, sometimes maybe not even available in the market. What do we do about that? You know, There's a lot that, that Cindy brought up about repurposing um, agriculture and food policies and it's important to look at how markets can be improved, but also where the market fails to supply a healthy diet at affordable prices. Um, there are other ways people access food. You know, so also encouraging diversity in own production and access to wild areas where people may be gathering food as well that supply some of those vitally important, um, you know, nutritious food groups that are not delivered in, you know, sacks of grain and food aid. Um, so thinking about uh, ways that that diverse, you know, support for own production, wild collection, and market improvements could be implemented for for both rural and urban. And uh, maybe Cindy has more to add. Actually, we're we're sort of at the end of our Q and A, but but thank you so much. Um, Really a big, big thanks to all of our speakers from Tufts, the World Bank, FAO, and IFPRI for putting forward uh, your methodology and, and really thinking through the implications of this work for future research, but also, and perhaps more importantly, for the policies and the, 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 the approaches we now need to explore in order to make sure that that 3 billion uh, number uh, actually is reduced, right? Because that is a quite staggering number. Um, many thanks also to our audience for all your questions. I'm sorry, we couldn't get through to all of them. 
And last but not least, let me invite uh, our audience to join the next IFPRI policy seminar, which will take place on July 21st at nine o'clock in, in DC time for a seminar on strengthening policy research and analysis capacity, the role of institutional development programs. Have a great end of your day or evening, wherever you may be. And many thanks again for joining us.